Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we speak to industry leaders to hear about the risks and rewards behind their success. Today we meet Joss Short, entrepreneur, trailblazer and chameleon of the real estate industry. People will know Joss best as the co-founder of Internos, now part of Principal Global Investors. Not one to shy away from risk, Joss set the business up in the wake of the GFC, leaving his role as CEO of Comerica's real estate business, where he was an early investor in self-storage and senior housing, asset classes that were alternative at the time, but now sit firmly in the mainstream. He began his career in investment banking, later heading up Bearings Real Estate Corporate Finance and Securitization Division, and afterwards Lazard's property business, where he got his first taste of working in fund management. Alongside his executive roles, Joss has also been an active board member of firms including Big Yellow, Great Portland Estates and Annington, where he sits as deputy chairman. He is also currently a non-executive director at the affordable housing platform Halo. Joss is known industry-wide for his tenacity, good sense of humour and being and I quote, someone you'd want to be sat next to at a dinner party. Joss, sadly, there's no three-course meal here in the studio, nor any bottle of Chablis, but we do have a veritable feast of the spoken word variety, and we can't wait to tuck in. Joss Short, welcome to Desert Island Risks. Thank you very much, Emily. Excellent introduction. (laughs) So let's kick things off with a short clip from John Zayner industry veteran and head of global partner solutions at LaSalle Investment Management. For those of you who don't know Joss, this should get you up to speed on both the man and his attitude to risk. Let's have a listen. I guess my overriding impression of him is he's a little bit like that Energizer bunny. And I don't mean that physically, I mean that mentally. (laughs) His, His brain is always going and thinking about different things from different perspectives and sharing them. He's the kind of person that you really like to be seated next to at a dinner party because he's just interesting. He's got lots of thoughts and he always expresses them in ways which are, I'll say interesting, I can't use interesting too many times, almost entertaining. And so he's just fun to be with. You like to be with people who are thoughtful and full of energy. So what is your perspective on risk? Well, that's a great, great question and a good intro from John. I think, obviously, I was a banker for 17 years before getting into fund management. And actually, at Bearings, we lived through the demise of Bearings, which was a catastrophic failure. And I think that taught us quite a lot. It it was, you know, it was like a death, that experience. And people react to death in very different ways. Some get angry, some cry, some are numb. And I, I think that's that's lived with me, actually, that when I'm looking at risk and looking at how we're going to position things, the, the, the collapse and demise of bearings is often front and centre in my mind. At Primerica Prycoa, which, which is now PGIM, as you referenced, Emily, at the beginning, we were early stage investors in Big Yellow. We took Hemingway Private and then we did Sunrise Senior Living in more of a strategic joint venture. So those were quite risky deals because often, you know, public to private has a lot of risk because you can be arbed out or outbid for. 
there's risk in VC and growing companies because you've got this thing called the J curve. So you've got huge expenditure before you get revenues going. So how you manage that risk. And then I suppose that all came together when we launched Internos. And with Internos, we, and, and we may come on and talk more about this, but we launched it in 2008, May. Obviously, Lehman collapsed in September 2008. We thought we were going to form uh, the usual closed-ended, commingled, seven-year private equity opportunistic pan-European fund. When we tried to do that in 2009, it was impossible. Even I think even Blackstone in 2009 w was potentially struggling to raise equity from investors. So we took a lot of risk in buying for two euros GPT Halverton. And, and those risks were more, in a way, reputational than financial because, you know, there wasn't a big outlay in buying that business. I want to talk more to you about that because that's fascinating. Um, you mentioned the J-curve and getting to revenue. You took a risk on, on people and markets when others wouldn't. Let's listen to Nick Vetch, who shared his experience on a risk you took on a business he founded, Big Yellow. Well, I, I wouldn't know about every single risk um, that he's taken, but um, in so far as we're concerned and the visibility for us in the early days of his involvement, indeed our involvement with uh, the company he invested in, Big Yellow, it was a very risky endeavor. We had uh, little or no revenue and we were buying properties with no planning consents. And he always asked very sensible questions, but was um, happy to, to back us. So that is certainly a mark of a man who's comfortable with the appropriate amount of risk. So how did you get comfortable taking a, a risk on a business that had little to no revenue? If we look back, I think Big Yellow was founded in 99, 2000. So they've been going for 20 something years and the market cap today is about 2.3 billion. So you could say that they've created in market cap terms, you know, 100 million of value every year. Obviously, that's been back in loaded to the last decade. And that doesn't include dividends that they've distributed to investors along the way. I think the first thing I'd say is you back the individuals. And Nick is an outstanding individual. And, you know, he had been part of the retail park phenomenon with uh, Grantchester and Edge Properties, which got taken out by Grantchester. That was his company. And so almost, I think, you take the risk on the people, but good people, or, or probably better, outstanding people, I think can do anything, almost anything. I think that's where we got most comfortable. Secondly, we were then working at an American firm, and self-storage was a much deeper, more liquid better known market in the US in 99, 2000 than it was in, in the UK, where it's it was still very emerging, very nascent. Not many people knew about it, knew how the metrics worked. And so actually, I think Nick and the property team led by Phil Burks, from their retail days, knew where to find sites. And what Big Yellow has today is a portfolio of properties that are just you cannot create them. They are irreplaceable. And of course, Big Yellow is one of several board seats you've had over the past two decades in the UK. How do you influence decisions when you don't have executive control? It's difficult. Um, it all depends, I think, on the culture 
and how collegiate the board is. You clearly need an outstanding chief executive and chief financial officer. And in Big Yellow's case, we had both of those. And in Great Portland's case, we had both of those. And in Annington, we have both of those. And now Halo. So I'm, I'm lucky, I think, Emily, that all of the people that you need have been outstandingly good. The board's got to gel, but actually you're, it, it's great if you've got diversity and different skills and try to avoid groupthink at all times, which is not easy. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you are relying on the executives. You, you, you have the information, you make the decisions around that boardroom table. Bottom line, you are reliant on the executives. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the city experience because we spoke to Toby Coulthard, the CEO of Great Portland Estate, and he spoke of a very intense period for the business around the, the GFC and how invaluable and steadfast in your support you were of the rights issue. He learned a lot from you from that time and was immensely grateful for that support. He said the whole industry was going through something like an existential crisis at the time. Tell me more about that period. Well, I think I got I went on the board in April 2007, which was the time I came out of um, PGIM. Obviously, within 18 months, we're in the financial crisis. I think the first thing I can recall is the September through December valuation quarter that when we had to report the December eight numbers, Basically, we were something like 20, 25 percent down in valuation terms and the valuers were obviously qualifying the valuations because there was no evidence in the market. So, you know, we had huge disclaimers across the valuations at the time. Then you roll forward from December 08 to March 09 and we're down a similar amount. So, you know, you think in six months you've basically gone down 40% in value. I mean, incredible when you think back at that. Possibly because I came from a more opportunistic and risk-on background. Mm. I was all for Toby raising as much money as possible. Um, very interesting that there were some members of the board, quite rightly, possibly more from a, a more conservative background, who A, were very worried about doing a rights issue and B, were saying to Toby, you know, Toby, you know, this has your this has your name all over it. You know, this rights issue is your rights issue. And if you don't deliver on deploying it sensibly, wisely, intelligently, then and you and, and, and you get it wrong, then, you know, you're forever going to be tarnished with that. So there was mm. there, there's some big decisions big calls and big discussions, I have to say, um, obviously with advisors, because you have investment banks placing the stock and, and leading the issue. But those are my recollections of how it went. But I think it also made us think, and we'd already, thanks to Toby, we'd been very lowly geared anyway going in, which obviously the, the other bigger majors, they were more highly geared. So we, we'd had our gearing positioning correct for that catastrophe, but we've kept it low ever since. And and COVID is yet again another example of a black swan event that you really don't expect, where if you're over leveraged and over geared, 
it, it will it will hurt you. There's a lot of similarities between being an effective board member and a good advisor. William Rucker, your former colleague and chairman of Lazard UK, has seen you in both roles, and he had this to say. Joss had a very distinctive character. He was never short of a strong view on something. And I think clients appreciate that in the advisory business because even if they don't necessarily agree, it forces them to think about it. What lessons did you take from your investment banking days into your board career? Well, I think the first thing to say, I think, Emily, is is what is very interesting for people is if you come out of investment banking and, first of all, you go into investment management, and, and you go into opportunistic real estate investing, that is a big leap. You know, I found my first six to 12 months at what was then Prycoa, now PGIM, quite hard. Because when you're an investment banking advisor, and you probably people will know this, you give the advice, the transaction happens, and then you're out of there. Whereas, of course, you know, when we invest in Big Yellow, when we buy... Um, Arlington with with Patrick Dagman, when we take Hemingway private, you know, you are then living with those investments for the period of the investments. And that is a very different skill set. I think you can you can clearly use your investment banking knowledge and expertise in that investment management role when you're managing things. But it is a it is a leap. It is a leap. And then secondly, and most interestingly, you find that people have I remember literally the first couple of days I was in the seat at, at Prycoa, um, I was having totally different conversations with the same people that I knew in my investment banking days. So just from the fact that you've pivoted from advising people to having capital, it's very different. I think then the skills, how those investment banking skills translate to being on a board, I think they're very relevant. I, I think William's right with that. And actually, you you will have. I had 17 years of investment banking experience, uh, debt capital markets, equity capital markets and corporate finance. So in a way, I was lucky enough to cover all aspects of what, what an investment bank advisory business should be giving the client. I would always say that you want somebody on a board who has city experience. I think that is important, particularly today when. As we're seeing in the first six months of this year, there's a plethora of private equity bids for publicly listed UK companies. And then you've got ARB funds and hedge funds selectively trying to disturb, dislodge, change those bids, up the bids when they're made. And so all of that judgment today around if you're bid for, how are you going to deal with that? And when does the board recommend the bid? It is very challenging and navigating your way through the decision making process and the judgments and the strategy you need in those in those moments. The iBanking experience is very helpful. The keys to success in the advisory world, indeed across the principal world too, is the ability to build relationships. We spoke to Ruth Kennedy non-executive director of Value Retail, founder of her own consultancy business and a philanthropist. And she talked of a friendship with you that goes back decades. This group of four, which is Joss, Jonathan Lane and Emma Swinton, the warmth and kindness and intelligence of Joss and our quartet is something that I'll always treasure. And who is it that always brings us together? 
who is it that organises the lunches and the dinners and the reunions and the Zooms in COVID? And more often than not, who is it that picks up the bill? Joss, of course, the brightest, kindest, funniest and most generous person you can know. If you don't already know him, try to find a route to his path. It will bring you nothing but joy. Well, um, that is lovely. Absolutely lovely from Ruth. And I never actually forget uh, an event that Ruth hosted. She, she went when she left Warburg's, um, she went to work for David Lindley mm. in his furniture business. That was her first step into sort of high end retail. And uh, she put an event on um, at Lindley's showroom in Pimlico. And um, we all turned up. And most of us at that time had left Warburg by then. And I never forget David Hobley, uh, my old boss at Warburg, saying, hey, Joss, you know, let's just shut the door and immediately form a new bank. Because this bank, with all the people in this room this evening, you know, this bank will, will be a category killer of a bank. Um, so I've got re it's interesting. I've got really fond memories of Warburg and the people in it. Um, obviously, I I worked in British investment banks all my life, not American ones. So. Uh, Warburg's, then Bearings, and then the back end of the 90s, uh, Lazard. Well, although Lazard did obviously have Lazard in the States as a very good franchise and uh, Lazard in Paris. So that was a, a bit different because it, it was the famous Troika of New York, London, Paris, which made Lazard quite different and, and exceptional. You're well known as an expert in building relationships what do you look for in people when developing a business partnership? That's a great question, Emily. I think two Josh Shorts would not make a successful business. So maybe Andrew Thornton might uh, agree with that comment. <laughs> so you you have to, and you've got to be brave. I think when you do this, you picking business partners is not easy but clearly one of the things you're looking for is different skill sets and it's 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 not easy in our world because and I'm now specifically talking uh, opportunistic fund management world because when we set Internos up what the investors were looking for was a team of people who had worked together but I think absolutely this you, you've got to have the courage to have the different skill sets in the room. So you need to pick all those people incredibly thoughtfully. And it's not easy. I mean, Emily, you'll know this better than me being a headhunter. You can do as much due diligence as you like on a person. But I think until you've got them in the business and in the room, in the engine room, around around a deal or a difficult situation... Only then will you know whether they're really credible, capable and up to it. And it's very hard to know that uh, in an interview process. I mean, we often say one hires on skill and fires on attitude. So so actually, you it, it is the technical skills. Are they the right person for that hedging role? Are they the right CIO? Let's get the technical pieces right. But also, what kind of character are they going to be around a boardroom table? How are they going to deal with adversity, challenge and all of those things? And and I think, Emily, the, the probably the best bit of advice I've, I've got for somebody setting up a new business is project when you're doing it. And this is not easy. Um, 
project yourself almost five or ten years hence and fundamentally believe at the outset that it is going to be a big business. So in making that judgment call, you therefore attempt to capitalise it the very best way you can, hire the best people you possibly can, put in place the most robust systems, processes, risk parameters and framework that you can. I mean, almost try and be the best of the best at everything you're doing, even though at that time you have no assets under management, no business. So, you know, you are you are cutting checks. You're you're deep in that J curve, mm. anticipating and expecting revenue. Um, and it's not easy because I think a lot of people will attempt to run a business on a shoestring because they, they, they probably don't have the financial courage and even emotional and intellectual and business courage to go deep at the outset and, and try and be the best of the best in everything you're doing. I think it's time for a Kevin Costner quote from the movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. There no. you go. Um, Baroness Helen Little, a sparring partner of yours on various boards, including Annington Homes. She's also the former Secretary of State. Had this to say. Well, one of the things that's really good if somebody is on a board is that they actually read the papers and Joss does read the papers and comes up with questions that are usually quite difficult to answer, which is quite good because it explores issues. And that is very, very useful. I think he's, he's a good compliment to me. And uh, we have the kind of relationship where we can disagree with one another and then have a laugh. Joss deals with disagreement by turning it into something that explores wider issues. And I suppose that's part of his risk-taking background because he wants to look at everything from every angle. And I find that hugely useful if somebody actually challenges you. People who agree with everything are, quite frankly, pretty useless. Well, I, I first met Helen about four and a half years ago. Uh, recruited with her to come on the board of Annington. Um, she's an absolutely incredible lady. I have nothing but admiration for her. And we've worked very well, actually, as chairman and deputy chairman of Annington, which, for those who don't know, is, is a big business. It's a £8 billion uh, GAV, sort of four and a bit billion, five billion NAV, um, residential UK business leasing 40,000 houses back to the uh, Ministry of Defence with 175 years still left on the lease. Um, so it's a fabulous a company and an excellent asset. Um, and it's very interesting what she has to say. I mean, I'm sure everybody, everybody reads the papers. Um, but I never forget Martin Skakluna, who's the chairman uh, now of Sainsbury's, but was the chairman of Great Portland Estates when I was on the board uh, after Richard Peskin retired as chairman. And he was on the board of Lloyd's in the financial crisis. And they would literally have thousands of pages to read, he would tell me, almost every couple of weeks from, you know, September 2008 through to coming out of 
the financial crisis in in 11 12 so you know never underestimate as a board member some of the reading you've got to do it really is war and peace <laughs> so if you're heavily dyslexic and do not like reading i would not advise you to be a, a board member because you cannot skimp those papers you have to read them and often i will read them twice you know i'll read them when they arrive and i'll, I'll, I'll read them on the morning or the afternoon of the evening of the of the day before the board yeah um vitally vitally important you read those papers well look let's take a step back to arguably the biggest risk of your career stepping out of a very stable business very secure job to set up internos we spoke to your co-founder, Andrew Thornton, who talked us through this very strange time back in 2008, just months after you started the business. Look, it was surreal. We were there with a new business. We had no clients. We had no investments. We had no assets. And the world was changing. It was very clear to us that a lot of these other managers that had issues were struggling to deal with them. And that created a big opportunity for us to look at working with investors to take over some of these mandates and provide solutions. And in many ways, when you're coming in as a fresh pair of eyes, you can tell it straight. People had real estate. People had real estate problems. People needed advice. And if that's not the foundation for a good business, then what is? Yeah, I, I think phenomenal um, from Andrew. I think the the real challenge was that we were wanting to be a private equity opportunistic fund. We couldn't do that. So we had to pivot to yeah. do something else. And I think where Andrew deserves enormous credit was he recognised that pivot and you know, the, the genesis of that pivot was buying the GPT Halverton business off GPT of Australia, where we bought a business with a number of funds, 2 billion of AUM, 100 people, uh, a number of European offices, and they were stressed. I mean, those funds were stressed. So that's when we go back, I suppose, Emily, to what I said at the beginning about the reputational risk, that if we couldn't deliver solutions for those in investors, we were going to be in trouble. What what interestingly then happened was uh, Jochen Schaefer-Schuren joined us from Invesco to um, lead our hotel and leisure business. And he did get a fund, a maiden hotel fund one up in 2011. So in a way, we bought a business where there was a lot of legacy, but we could work with it. We then set up our own new, brand new hotel fund, thanks to Jochen, which was phenomenally successful. But then, interestingly, having done the Halverton trade, we did get a reputation for problem solving. So then, you know, we we bid for the investor fund management business. And even though we got outbid in the end by Palmer Capital and Townsend, um, you know, we launched a public offer for Invista. We took over a British land fund. We took over two Invista funds. We took over a number of merchant place funds. We took over some other funds. I think if I think back now, we did about nine fund takeovers. Um, and, and actually, we were bidding for those. We didn't really pay for them. Often they came with an office. So our Paris office was the investor team. Our Madrid office was the British land team. And then in 2013, we did what I would say was a transformational deal for Internos, 
which was buying Comets Bank's Comets Real Special Funds business. And that was a game changer. I think that that Comets Bank business uh, in our hands became a, a really fabulous asset and probably one of the key reasons that principal bought Internos in in 2018. When we asked John Zayner about the key to your success, um, he focused on another key ingredient. Let's have a listen. Perseverance matters a great deal. And so he's a combination, at least as I've seen it, of being that energizer bunny, full of energy, full of ideas, always curious and just persevering. That's ultimately, I think, what made Internos work is he just, he didn't give up. He can't give up, but he didn't give up. And that perseverance, again, may significantly be part of founding your own business. But I think that's, that's always been who he was. He was always going to make it work. So you were always going to make it work. What, what, what was the reality of that? I would say, Emily, now, looking back, um, I have the utmost respect for people who set up their own businesses. You've done it. I've done it. The emotional volatility and financial volatility of doing it is the amplitudes are enormous. It is way, way harder than people think. You know, if I look back at my P-Gym experience, you know, which was a great experience, um, you know, investing in quite big public and private real estate companies in Europe, majority and minority positions. I actually think it was easy in hindsight. And um, you need enormous belief and perseverance because I think what happens when it's your own business and um, I was the majority shareholder in my business is that the, the buck absolutely stops with you on every decision. So expanding the business, opening offices, doing trades, bonuses, salaries, promotions. You know, you cannot say, oh, uh, there's a person in New Jersey who vetoed that, Emily. I'm so sorry we haven't managed to, you know, they know that it's your door, right? And And it's a really interesting thing to learn. And I, I honestly don't think you will ever know what it's like. I mean, Professor Andy Baum said to me, um, until you've run your own business, you've never lived. I mean, I found it at the time a rather uh, huge uh, expression, but now I know exactly what he means. Zayna's right. Unless you have that perseverance and you're relentless, I, w I would almost say relentless is a better word than perseverance. I think you've just got to be relentless and, you know, do not give up. And there will be so many obstacles in your way. Um, you know, you could liken it to acting. You could liken it to high level intensive sport. I think, you know, those pyramids are incredibly narrow. So the sporting analogy is an interesting one. So Ian Marcus, a former guest of this podcast and of course a well-known industry professional told me to ask you a couple of questions so the first one he said was um ask him about his immediate reaction when johnny hit the winning drop goal 
in the Rugby World Cup in 2003. So there was a, this is a good story. There was a group of us um, in Sydney, lucky enough to be in Sydney in 2003 for the New Zealand-Australia semi, the England-France semi the following day, and then the final. I went up during that week to uh, talk to Macquarie Bank in Brisbane at one of their conferences. I was honoured and excited enough to be their guest speaker about European real estate. We were level with Johnny when he kicked the kick. It went to the England end of the ground in the Telstra Stadium. And my wife was on my left, Demelza, and on my right was Ian Marcus. And who did I kiss? I did not kiss my wife, Demelza. I kissed Ian Marcus. On the lips, I think. And on the lips, Emily, quite possibly. <laughs> um, I don't believe there were tongues, but we can't go there. It was extraordinary. extraordinary. Then, of course, I would have kissed my wife and then Marcus Rose and Paul Wolfenden and Mark Hancock and other people who were with us on, I have to say, one of the most emotional nights of my life. And that England rugby team of 2003 was an utterly outstanding group of people with leaders all around the team, which, again, I think you need in business. You, it's very hard. And we've seen examples of it where uh, private equity real estate businesses are run by one individual. Mm. But it, it, I think it gets it, it can get difficult and problematic because to then come and monetize that business and sell that business around the one individual is so much key person risk that but potential buyers will find that hard. Um, so you do you do need leaders all around the park in a business, I think. Well, as if we've not had enough isolation over the past year and a half, I'm afraid we are still going to maroon you on a desert island. What are you going to miss most about being away from the industry? I think the interactions, mm. the personal interactions with some phenomenal people. I mean, what I love about real estate is it is it's it's an industry sort of full of extremely interesting people. You know, I used to do uh, capital markets at Warburg's and at Bearings in my early life. And when you're just competing on a bond issue with Vodafone, and it's all about the basis point, or it's all about the swap, or it's all about the maturity of the debt, or it's all about those three things. It's not terribly exciting. Whereas in real estate, there's so many interesting people that you're dealing with, the asset that you're dealing with. It's just a much more enjoyable financial asset. I mean, that's the one thing that really has happened to real estate in the last 20 years is the financialization of the asset. Um, and, I, I, you know, that's been led by Blackstone in particular. You know, Blackstone today has $378 billion of real estate under management. I mean, think about that for a moment. I think if you added up the entire listed European real estate gav of every single company, it may not come to $378 billion. And that's of Blackstone's 600 and something billion dollars of assets. So, you know, to me, I've I've had an incredible period of 20 years where the industry at my end of it, which is more opportunistic 
and private equity has been transformed by the two Bs and the two stars, you know, Blackstone, Brookfield, Lone Star and Starwood. But who knows? Let's just see. For the moment, I'm enjoying retirement. I'm spending it with Demelza and my three beautiful daughters. Obviously, with COVID and lockdown, we've we've had more time to be together, which actually has been incredibly enjoyable. And actually, you know, the conference circuit, that conference circuit may never exist as it's existed before. Will we will we see again, you know, 28,000 people at Expo Real and 23,000 people at MIPIM? I kind of doubt it, actually. Or if we do, it'll take many, many years for that to happen. Um, so in a way, it might not be the same. Well, Joss, we are definitely at the after-dinner digestive phase of this uh, podcast. Um, sticking with our theme of dinner parties, We've got one more clip from Baroness Little, who may not be so keen to attend the next dinner party with you. Always great fun. Joss Short is absolutely good fun. He gets up to some uh, pranks. We were in Berlin for a, a shareholder conference and we ended up with Joss driving around in a Trabant, one of these sort of zany cars that were made in East Germany. And it's only a two-stroke engine. So I was in the back. He was in the front. People were cheering us because they hadn't seen a a Trabant for a very long time. But what I hadn't realised is I was getting soaked in the smell of petrol. So we had to go to a lovely dinner at night, looking out on the the remains of the, the Berlin Wall. And all I could think about was I stank to high heaven of eau de petrol. Fabulous story. And by the way, for those who haven't uh, driven a Trabant, don't. Um, it's it's like driving a lawnmower. Um, with the Baroness. With the, the ba- with, with Baroness Helen Little of Coat Dyke, former High Commissioner to Australia and Secretary of State. Um, it's quite an experience. Uh, you, turning them's difficult. Braking is difficult. I mean, it's good fun, but they were built behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany. And you you can, I mean, we did this, I think two years ago or three years ago, and you you can still do it, um, but it's quite an experience. Um, and literally, I remember my arms having, you know, grabbed the steering wheel for, and we did it for a couple of hours. I think they were sort of still shaking you know, in the evening. So she stank of petrol and I I sort of had the DTs for most of the night. I mean, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Joking aside, it seems like almost everyone has a just short story. And that's a credit to, to the energy, the originality and good humour you have brought to the industry throughout your career. Toby Courtauld, CEO of Great Wharton Estates, says that your one kryptonite in life is your love verging on obsession of chocolate biscuits. I'm guessing this is where all your energy comes from. Toby told us that Margaret in his office had to work extra hard to keep cupboards fully stocked of chocolate biscuits. (laughs) We thought there was no better way to end the podcast than with some last orders from Andrew Thornton. 
I think what differentiates Joss is not just that he knows everyone, not just his enthusiasm, but that he talks to people, listens to people and connects people. His ability to join dots, to create something out of lots of seemingly random conversations or events is his truly special skill. And I think that's what allowed us perhaps to achieve things that our larger competitors couldn't, because we could be more nimble. We could look our counterparts in the eyes and say, we'll do that deal. And they knew they could trust us. That authenticity is a huge trait of Joss, isn't something of which he can be hugely proud. So with that smorgasbord of anecdotes, allow me to get the bill. Joss, Jonathan Otley Short, thank you for being our guest. Thank you so much, Emily. Really enjoyed it. Excellent. Desert Island Risks is brought to you by Bohill Partners, the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry. For more information on this podcast or Bohill Partners, feel free to visit our website at www.bohillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks.